This is Kevin Evans with the Chapter by Chapter Life class for Crossroads Assembly of God Church in Greenville. And we, of course, are studying the Gospels as we have for the last two years. And we are currently in Luke. And uh, last time we were in class, we almost finished chapter 18 and we stopped on verse 30. And uh, just as a quick recap, Luke is divided into three different sections. And the first goes into the life and origins of Jesus and uh, John. And then uh, after it kind of establishes their roles, uh, you kind of cut to this uh, uh, section at the end of the book where we have the Passion Play, which kind of follows Mark and Matthew a little closer. Now, this is written by Luke, who is a very much a third-party person. He, he was not present for anything that he's, he's writing about. And so he, everything comes from testimonies that other people have given him. Well, when you do that kind of research, uh, you get all kinds of stories from that, that, that you don't really know where to put them. And so people tell you teachings of Jesus. Let me tell you something that I heard him say. And he might get that from three different people. And he will write that down, but he doesn't know where to put it. Well, all of that stuff ends up in this middle section. And it's kind of chronological. And he says, you know, as he was approaching Judea or whatever, and and it looks like he's traveling and these things are happening, but they're not necessarily in a strict chronological order. And I think if you approach it that way, it makes more sense. It kind of has this section of the teachings of Jesus. Now, we have been working on that for months at this point, And we are coming to the end of section two. Because in this next chapter, chapter 19, we finally have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is the first day of the Passion Week. And there are still parables and miracles. But, but at this point, most scholars say that you can count it as chronological and that happened on day one, and that happened on day two, and that happened on day three, and suddenly it becomes a cohesive story, and there is a development. But you can't assume development of uh, characters and, and, and things in this middle section, because you don't quite know when things happen. Okay, fair? So All right. Section one is more or less chronological, and then... In section, section three is more or less chronological. Section two is... Uh, It's a collective story. Maybe it is, but it doesn't necessarily jive with the other Gospels, and there are going to be some inconsistencies, I think. And I think that's fair, and it doesn't negate the divine inspiration of the Gospel to say that. So it's just that that's how we're going to understand it. So having said that, we finished up on chapter 18 on verse 30. Yes, sorry. Thank you, Lester. So let's finish that up, uh, starting at verse 31. Uh, Jesus took the 12 aside, so this is a private thing, and told them, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this meaning. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he is talking about. I'm staring at Andrew, hoping that he will jump in and say something. Okay. 
No? Okay. All right. Um, most scholars, okay, old scholars, call this the third prediction of Jesus' death, although Jesus predicted his own death on many more than three times in Scripture. Uh, it coincides with other predictions of his death and other Gospels. Uh, he, it, it's one more tie-in to the Old Testament prophecies. And the disciples did not understand any of this. He's already explained this to them in Luke. It seems like they should have had it at this point, you know, which is why I think he was taken out of chronological order, maybe. You know, it may have been an earlier thing. But Christ tells this story, and he's referencing Old Testament. And he's basically telling them that their expectation of what the Messiah is going to be is not what the Messiah is going to be. And, and they still don't quite get it. And then they don't really get it until after he's crucified and resurrects, and suddenly everything he's ever told them starts to fall into place. You know, they go back through their notes, and they go, oh, wait, I get this now. You know. um, yeah. This is just my thought. Like, like uh, if you take into account the... Thank you. If you take into account like the Jew first century Jewish context, I would say it applies to the disciples. They expect this powerful conqueror that will kick specifically in their case, the Romans out and create their own kingdom. And also another thing too is if I, was it Romans, uh, man, uh, Romans 15 or something about like, if they would have known that Jesus would have died on the cross, they wouldn't crucify him in the first place. I, wasn't it he? Romans? Anyway. Me neither. <laughs> it's been a while. I'm trying to. But my point is, is basically uh, think of it like coding or something like that, where you don't want to be too specific, I guess. If they, if they would have known what was going to happen, they wouldn't have done it. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was trying to get at. I think I think it was Rome. true of us all? <laughs> I think it's. But anyway, that was just the thing. I like to get it out there. Okay. Anyway, back to you, Kevin. All right. Um, so, he has this little prophecy, and I don't think I had too much notes there. Third warning, they got it again. They still didn't get it. He's telling them that there's more important things in life than just reserving your life, you know, because you, they're bigger, it's trying to get a picture in the big picture. Then we have the last uh, incident in chapter 18, beginning at verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, okay, now we've gone all the way around Jerusalem and we're down on Jericho, which is south of Jerusalem, and that's happened kind of quickly here. A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. Then he came near. Jesus asked him, what do you want to do what, what do you want me to do for you lord i want to see he replied jesus said to him receive your sight your faith has healed you immediately he received his sight and followed jesus praising god when all the people saw it they also praised god 
Jesus heals a blind man. They respect his faith. He was persistent. One more blind dude. Wow, that's all I have in my notes. One more blind dude. Yeah, okay. I found uh, Yeah, I, I Okay, found, hit me. It's basically, uh, it's in 1 Corinthians 2.8. I don't know why I was thinking. Okay, just keep saying it. Where basically it says, uh, none of the rulers of the age understood it, for they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay. So that's what I was thinking of. Right. So if they knew what has happened, they wouldn't have done it. Makes sense. Okay, now that we've finished up the chapter from last week, this week's chapter is chapter 19. And uh, we've got uh, uh, an actual incident entering Jerusalem. And I assume that this is kind of chronological. I think it was put here because it, it happened just before the triumphal entry. And then he's got a parable called the Ten Minas. And then we have the triumphal entry, and then suddenly everything's on a clock again, you know. And, and we can, most scholars say yeah, that it happened in this order. So, uh, 19, verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho, which is a city just south of Jerusalem, uh, and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus spot, uh, reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your home today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, this is interesting, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. All right, are you ready for the Gospel of Kevin? Bring it on. Okay. Remember, when are you going to publish that? One day, one day, one day. Uh, you know, I was raised in a church that has this children's song about Zacchaeus and the wee little man. And then when you see the passion play put into a good movie, he is always played by a dwarf. I think that's an, an exaggeration of what the scripture says. Uh, it makes for a better storytelling, I admit, because we like to characterize things. When we tell a story, it makes the impact greater. However, that's not what the scripture says. He was a tax collector, and he couldn't see over the people around him, so he crawled up in a tree. This is not terribly unusual. It said he was a short man. It didn't say he was uh, abnormally short. He is not a midget or a dwarf. Uh, he just couldn't see, and he wanted to see. I also don't think that 
I have a hard time with a, with a chain of events where Christ sees a stranger in a tree behind the crowd and says, hey, you up there, I come into your house. That's odd. I also have a hard time seeing a stranger up a tree at the back of the crowd saying, I repent of all my sins and I'm going to give everybody multiple times if you can prove that I stole anything from you. That doesn't feel right either. And everybody in the crowd would be like, oh, really? Zacchaeus and Jesus have met before. I think Zacchaeus is a follower. Yes, he's a tax collector. I think they've had a talk. I don't think Zacchaeus is necessarily an unrighteous man. Uh, poor Jews ended up working for the Romans because they had no other choice. And poor Jews, if you got made a tax collector, could become a rich Jew fairly easily because the Roman system of taxation was open for wanton grift. It was designed for grift. They, as long as the Romans got their percentage, yes. they didn't care what you charge. It, they, they set up the, the, the template for modern gangsters, and it's a system that kind of works, uh, except that it completely abuses the bottom of the pyramid. You know, uh, but who cares about the bottom of the pyramid? They're just going to conquer another people and move on, and you know, bring more wealth in. Uh, so if you get to be a little higher in the chain, in the in the food chain, then you can end up being a wealthy man. Uh, there is a term in this verse that is not used anywhere else in Scripture, and that is chief tax collector. That's what it translates to in English. He was not just a tax collector, he was a boss. Probably. May have introduced him, but you know, we're getting really into the gospel of Kevin there. You know, I don't know. Uh, he, as a chief tax collector, we assume that he's a manager of some kind. He's a little higher up. He's overlooking Matthew and his level of tax collecting, you know. Uh, he is therefore a wealthier man than he's, he's normal. Getting big, he's, getting he's getting a bigger cut. He absolutely is. Now, having said that, how about this idea? He's become a believer, and he's not cheating people. He doesn't say he was cheating people. In fact, he says, if you can prove, he doesn't say prove, but if I have, where is it? I will, pay you back four I will pay you back four times. No smart Jew says that unless he already knows <laughs> that, he's that he's good. You know? Because if he was cheating rampantly, he wouldn't be able to pay Right, back four times. right. I don't think there's a lot of cheating going on here. Or, well, but can I play devil's advocate? Sure. I do all the time. In verse 9, Jesus does say, today salvation has come. He didn't say this guy's already. He said today salvation has come to this house. You always throw riches in my <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> or unless it's Jesus making a point for the crowd. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yeah. Well, because then because he's going to his house. The point is he is associating with 
tax collectors and publicans. He's, he's going to a sinner's house. But the thing is, he's repented and he is a believer and therefore completely worthy of entertaining Jesus in his home. But the whole just whether okay. it happened in the past or present yeah. was a sinner and now he's saved, whether it happened yes. before now or today. The story is he was, now he's not. Right. Okay, so okay, Jesus responds, salvation has come to this home today. Maybe that's the first time Jesus has come into his home. Jesus speaking of himself, salvation. He that's how I would interpret that, yeah. yes. I would, but. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, your degree trumps mine, so I guess you win. Okay, so is that everything we want to drag out of that? Okay, so going on to verse 11. Wow, we're flying through. Uh, we've got a parable of the ten minas, which, which I thought was interesting because in Matthew's it's called the ten talents, and that opens up a whole world of multiple you know, interpretations. And it's kind of the same story, but there are a host of subtle differences. Uh, verse 11, while they were listening to this, I guess this is Zacchaeus, the tax collector, uh, he went in to tell them, went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now think about that for a minute. Jesus has been not going to Jerusalem for a while. He's been wandering around Galilee and Judah, walking around Jerusalem, which is what you have to do in order to go from Galilee to Judea without going into Jerusalem. Uh, and they all want him to go into Jerusalem, challenge the order, overthrow the temple, become the Messiah, destroy the Romans, and make them rulers of the earth. And somewhere in the back of his mind, Peter is saying, I would like to be governor of Assyria, and I hope I can bring that up to him later. You know, that's happening, you know. Uh, I used to tell my little brother when we were growing up that when I was king of the world, I would give him Australia if he would just behave. It didn't work. Yeah, no, yeah, that was probably more to the point. <laughs> I will give you Australia if you will leave me alone. Oh, excuse me? Oh, Mar okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, um, I'm, I'm digressing. So they think he's going to come in and be this powerful thing. And they're, they're waiting for this imminent revolution. They're, they're ready for the revolution. Okay, if, if, if the Messiah is here and he's ready to lead the revolution and you're going to stand behind him and, 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 and jump in, wouldn't you, wouldn't you bring a weapon? Wouldn't you bring a Bowie knife? I just finished reading Blood of Heroes. I can't make it stop. You don't go to the revolution empty-handed. You bring your horse and your shotgun and your Bowie knife. Right? Mm -hmm. And I have plenty of knives, too, at home. Now, I admit, again, Gospel of Kevin, this isn't in the scripture, but I think he's seeing revolutionaries showing up ready to kill Roman. Yeah. You know? That's what he's... And so he's telling this story, going, hold on now. Hold on now. What you think's about to happen is not going to happen. You know, and that's what this parable is about. And I think if we put it in that context, it makes a lot of sense. 
He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his servants hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. It's a 500% return on investment. This is, they did good. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you, what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take this mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even that will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. It's probably where Santa Anna got the idea, actually. Yeah, yeah I, I really, I was really reading the wrong book for this lesson today. Sorry. Okay. Um, I apologize to the internet. You have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, Matthew has a similar story about talents. And it seems like this is the same story and they're reporting in the same one. However, there are like 10 separate differences and uh, the, the amount of money, uh, the return on the money, the kind of people he gave the money to, uh, the thing about the king isn't in Matthew's version. And it, it really, it doesn't feel like the same story. And I think this is uh, one of those, uh, what my father-in-law used to call a sugar stick. It's that message that you practice 50 times and you tailor fit it to whatever your audience, you know, needs. It's a parable. It didn't actually happen. And he tells it as a parable. and. It's modified fiction to fit his point, you know, and so, and so he's, he's talking about there's going to be this big space of time before the master comes back and you need to manage your stuff before the master comes back. And that's what he's telling these people. And it was a little more complicated in Matthew. And I think Matthew and Luke are reporting on two separate stories. And remember, Luke didn't even hear it. He is recording what somebody else heard. So somebody else heard Christ tell this story at a different time than Matthew did. Fair? Mark's version of it. What did you think of Mark's version of it? Is it in Mark? Pull up Mark. I just only studied the Matthew one. 
since you opened the kettle, Bill, you have to jump in. Good to have Bill back. Isn't it nice? Uh, okay, while he's looking that up to argue with me, um, details. A mina, for those of you that like to dance in the head of a pen with the angels, uh, is three months wages, roughly. Uh, every reference I can find is like that. I wanted to try some kind of a modern relevance to it. And I looked up the average American full-time wage for a week, which comes to just over $1,000. That's the average, actually, actually it's the median age, but that but a wage, but that works. And so that means that a month's wages is $12,000. Gross. So a mina is roughly worth $12,000. This is a chump change. This is a significant, yeah. you know, you can do something with $12,000. Uh, a talent is worth tremendously more than that. And a drachma is like a tenth of that. A drachma is still a, a pretty good pay, but it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's significantly less than a mina. Uh, when Matthew tells the story, the master is giving millions of dollars to these three guys who are going to manage his estate. It is a huge estate thing. This is a little lighter. This is uh, go see what you can do with this thing, you know, uh, lower level uh, for whatever that was worth. Okay, what did you find what you needed? Yeah, it says, for the son of man is as a man taking a far journey who left this house and gave authority to his servants and every man his work and commanded the porter to watch Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house cometh, and even or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. So that's Mark's version of that, the, the parable of the pounds. He calls it the parable of the pounds. Yeah. Um, okay, let's put it in context. Mark was the first gospel. And Luke and Matthew had read Mark when they wrote their thing. Mark only covered the Passion Play, uh, only those 10 days, really. And, uh, and Mark did, he gave it his best shot. Matthew is preaching from Mark, and again, this is Gospel according to Kevin. And uh, he keeps saying, you know, he'll reference Mark because everybody out there has read Mark. You know, he, they've got this book that's out there. And he goes, well, yeah, I was there and Mark wasn't, and let me elaborate on that story. Well, that becomes Matthew's preaching. You know, well, let, let me tell you the real story over there. Mark had his information from Peter, though, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and he was there. It, it wasn't wrong, yeah. but Matthew has his own nuanced thing on it. Also, Matthew is talking to Jews, and he's trying to make it fit them. He's making it audience-specific. So Matthew writes a much more elaborate version of Mark. Matthew is an expansion of it. Luke is a Gentile? He's a physician. Or he might be a Jewish physician who is very comfortable with Gentiles and writing for Gentiles. He's probably educated. Yes, absolutely educated. Especially He's a researcher. And knowledgeable of the Jewish customs and law, but may not have been a Jew. You know, he's a convert. So Luke's version is kind of different because he's aiming at a different group and he's gathering information from multiple sources. Matthew is, this is my personal testimony, you know, 
Luke's is, this is everybody I've ever talked to. Does that make sense? And so you're going to get slightly different versions. And if you'll notice, when you tell a story in Mark, see, that was very simple and stripped down. It got right to the point. And it is the same point as in Luke. And then, and then Matthew's is more elaborate. And then Luke's is even more so with more changes in detail. It's amazing that Luke wound up writing the book of Acts, too. You know, it's really amazing that he did that, too. Well, he was there for a lot of that, so yeah. I'm sure that helped. Okay, so, uh, what's the takeaway from this story? Oh, let's see. Joe, I think he's, Jesus is trying to get him to focus on the real, the real picture here. The yes. real picture yeah. is Basically. that he came to, to suffer and die and bring salvation, not to take over and rebuild a kingdom and do all of that. It was not the time. Or at least not now. And the king is going to leave for a bit. And you need to manage your business. And that's, that, that's the story. That's why Marx was kind of cut down. He got to the point of, he was trying to get to the point of saying, this is, this is the reality of what he's saying. And he just tried to put yeah, it. Yeah, he told you the point. Yeah. yeah. He just told you the point out, outright. Um, so crisis, you know, is, and so basically we need to wait for the king to come back. And I think he's added this king thing. And it's kind of weird that a guy would go off to be made king and then come back because that doesn't happen much. However, in the Roman Empire, it actually did. That's something Herod had to actually do. Uh, you know, they, they wanted him to take over Jerusalem and become king of Jerusalem, but he had to travel to Rome and bow to all the right people, be a, good be a good Roman and give gifts to all the right folks. And once, you know, he, he'd uh, paid homage to all the gangster lords, then he comes back and, and then he's got his, his control again. And so when he did come back, he came back as the triumphant king because he was, they made him king. And that's kind of the story that Christ is telling here. This was not something foreign to them. And it was a parable. It's not like it's actually happened. He's saying, you understand how this would happen. Here's what he did. Um, I think I'll speak because I, I, I think you hit it on the nail when you started when you said they're probably in the crowd that he was zealous. Yes. And he's trying to get the message across when the king is gone, don't look at your own interests. For instance, I, I, the verse came in my head the weapons of our war, or the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Mm -hmm. They're wanting to Sure. And that doesn't work. It works short term, maybe, but it works long term. Yeah, patriot we're, and militia have become bad words in our modern society. We're, we're not going to win the world by force. We never win the world. It used to be good words. This was not the first time Jesus was in this situation. There was another time, and I can't remember, it may have been in Matthew, where they were trying to take Jesus forcibly to make him. Yeah. King and he had to slip away before they could you, take him forcefully. You can't force salvation. You can't legislate salvation. And he said, "We need you need to invest yourself spiritually, not physically." And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And I think the message of the the one the one uh, unprofitable servant was looking out for his own skin yep. and his own interests. Yes. And sometimes people say, "I want this so bad, I will do whatever." I can to get what I want. Right. And that's what Jesus is 
but you guys wanting me to put up a sword and take back the government forcefully, that's stupid. That's not what I'm here for. Right. And that doesn't work. I'm talking about spirituality. Yeah, back and forth it. Jesus could have conquered. He would have won. He would have won hearts. Right. Yeah, so that, yeah. that's my take from that message. The day when it does happen that he steps in and takes over, it will be a bloody battle. But, but he's in charge. But he's in charge. It will be the right time. Yeah, yeah, he's in charge. I'm going to trust him. Yeah. Yeah. There's a difference between surrender and capitulation. What is the difference? I mean, I'm asking what is the difference? I never heard of the word capitulation or whatever. Capitulation? Um, okay. You pull a gun and you point at me and you say dance. Okay, I am not a dancer, Andrew. Okay. Uh, I would feel really silly dancing. Uh, I don't want to dance, but you're pointing a gun at me. I'm going to do the ugliest jig you have ever seen <laughs> because you're pointing a gun at me. That is capitulation. So it's basically, uh, I'm going to do something without your consent. If you put down the gun, and you're pretty, and you say, so do you want to dance? And I actually want to? That's different. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So Christ wants our hearts. He wants us to come to him willingly, not under coercion. And the conquering uh, uh, king that the Jews wanted were all about coercion. They wanted to crush the enemy, get revenge, uh, the worst thing that happened to the church was when the emperor became Christian. Yep. And the church became not outlawed. They it couldn't be, be the outsider. It became the coerced right. thing, which certain politicians two weeks ago came out and said Christianity should be ruling the government. True. Yeah. Oh, really? You, you're part of that? No, no. Uh, she saw the news. He saw the oh, news. you saw the news. Oh, okay. I'm going, churches never handed political not well, no, because there's too many people in it. Yeah, well, but once you get power, you do your best to keep the power. Yeah, absolute power corrupts absolute. And so I think the church does it well being the church. Yeah. And there's more power in just being the church. I think the church becoming involved in government lowers the church's power. To be quite honest with you. Yeah. That's why there should be that. That's why there's that separation of church and. And I just I I think Constantine. Suddenly, he became a Christian, which was probably more toward the political advantage. Of course, yeah. I don't think he became a Christian. Yeah, and he goes. Suddenly, you're not outlawed. Suddenly, no, you have to be a Christian if you're a Roman, and you're going to go to prison if you don't. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and he goes. And suddenly, it was coercive. Yes. And, and suddenly, a lot of the pagan stuff enters into the yes. because of that. It's that, I think that's what Jesus is warning about. He knows what's going to happen yeah. when that happens. He wants our heart, not our force stuff. So, you think about it, when he does come back to take over all this, Christianity will basically already be broken apart because the rapture has taken place and everything is, the church has been taken out of the way. and So there is no, it's just a, I don't think a lot of people will say they're Christian. They don't like the way Jesus is going to run that. Because he's not going to run it like the way they want it to run. We've had no other opinion today. We've had no other opinion. I, I may not, but I'm going to give in because it's Jesus. 
If, you, if, if Jesus has a different opinion than me, I want to switch to that opinion. <laughs> I trust that. I won't be able to win without. If Jesus says, go to, go to the right or go to the left, I'm good. and I'm going the opposite way, I'll turn around and go back. You know what I'm okay. saying. I mean, Jesus is pretty good to go with. Well, um, the next segment in this chapter is the triumphant entry. And then he goes to the temple and tosses out the money changers yet again. How many times did he do that? Because they never seemed quite to be the same time when he died. I think the money changers got to the point that they just ran for the door when he walked in. Oh, that guy again. Oh, my goodness. Why won't one of these guards take care of that dude? What is this? And so, uh, yeah. However, I think there's a lot to unpack in that. And once again, we're not going to quite finish with the chapter. And we will come back next week and pick it up at verse 28 because uh, we don't have enough time to tackle it. Okay, with that, I'm signing off. So goodbye, Internet. See you next week.